Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, August the 18th, 2017, and this is episode 2068 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's a Friday, we have an expert counsel QA show for you. Remember, send me your questions for the expert counsel, and uh, if you're not sure exactly what we have to offer there, Go by the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. One of the tabs you'll see up at the top near the far left is About. Hover on that, you'll see a tab that says Meet the Expert Counsel or pull up any of the Expert Counsel shows. You'll see a link in there to the same page. And take a look at all the people and the things they can answer for you. And remember, we now have a former law enforcement officer um, on the uh, council, and I could definitely use some questions for him. So if you have a question... For a law enforcement officer, from a perspective of like things going on, and I got him working on one right now that I think is kind of be kind of interesting, uh, but I could definitely use more forms. So uh, get the questions in to our expert counsel. Today I've got a pretty good lineup for you. I have dealing with thistles in your pasture from Darby Simpson, our farming expert. I have a first aid kit for motorcycle riders from Dogbos. No, Nurse Amy, and I'm going to tell you how to get Nurse Amy to be the one to answer your questions because it finally happened. Uh, we have a question from going from paper wallet back to Coinbase with your Bitcoin after the uh, soft fork. Uh, we have why tax vouchers would actually be bad news for homeschool from Mike and Sue LaPreeze. We have uh, a question on how health share programs work versus health insurance programs for Gian Pugliano. We have cooking and using stinging nettles from Nicole Sauce. And boy, is she on the top of her game with this answer. What do you hear it? Great one for a Friday. And then I'm going to have a, a weird little segment called If Culinary Intuition is a Thing, What Else is a Thing? All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. Man, Safe Castle Royal is the original survival podcast sponsor. These are the first people that stepped up and said, Jack, we want to sponsor the show. They've been with us for eight friggin' years. If you need something for your prepping, I'm telling you, the folks over at Safe Castle, that's Vic Rontal and his team, have what you need. Check them out today at safecastle.com. Next up, Bobwell's Nursery. Guys, Bobwell's Nursery has become my go-to source for trees, bushes, plants, vine. If it's perennial and something comes off it that you eat, I'm going to Bobwell's Nursery to see if they have it first. They're only about three and a half hours to my east, uh, but it doesn't matter where you are, you can get stuff shipped right to your door from Bobwell's Nursery, and if you're an MSB member, they give you 10% off. Incredible selection, great people, great service. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com. Uh, next up, let's uh, remind you guys real quick, hey, if you want to support the show, you can do so by joining the Member Support Brigade, but I'd wait. Yes, guys, I would wait on that until Monday. We're going to be doing a system conversion on Saturday, And I'll probably run a sale on Monday through Friday next week. So I just went up. Just another notice. Saturday there may be some inaccessibility of the MSB between about 8 and noon Central Standard Time because we're doing some maintenance on the MSB. That takes us right into uh, our first question on the show today. This one is for Darby Simpson on dealing with thistles. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. 
calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Jeremy up in Minnesota about how to control thistles out in your pasture. Jeremy's main question is revolving around wanting to know if mowing thistles down before a rain is an effective way to manage them in pasture. Uh, he's heard from several sources that mowing thistles down before heavy rain is a good way to eliminate or at least control the, the uh, thistle population. And these sources state that the uh, the plant will actually drown uh, and or rot uh, once the uh, once the rain hits. So uh, Jeremy's got about uh, 14 acres of, of pasture that uh, it's got a few animals on it, but um, according to him, pretty neglected uh, since he first purchased the property only two years ago. Used to have a dairy, but uh, really hasn't had anything on it in the last 10 to 15 years, and it is overrun with thistles and uh, uh, some stinging nettle and things of that nature. And he's, he's got a couple animals out there that will eat some of it. He says he's found that goats will definitely eat the, the uh, thistles and the nettle, but the cows and the, his yak will generally not touch those, which does not surprise me at all. They typically do uh, stay away from that. So, um, so far, Jeremy's been controlling this mechanically, and sometimes that's all you can do if it's overrun. You definitely don't want to get these things to get a seed head on them because then your problem uh, just gets much worse. So anyway, uh, Jeremy, to answer your main question, I don't know. I, I don't know if mowing thistles down before a heavy rain is a good way to manage them or not uh, because I've never done it. Uh, I've been fortunate. I don't have a whole lot of thistles here. The basic way we control thistles is the same way we control everything else, and that's with the cows. So I know you don't have a large herd of cattle, but it does sound like you've got some open pasture land there, and obviously it's at least functionally organic because it hasn't had anything on it in so long. Um, you know, I, I, I think if it were me, I, I would probably start reaching out to somebody uh, nearby that maybe has some goats or some sheep. Uh, and they're possibly looking for some pasture land to lease, or maybe you even let them use it for free. If it will start to control your thistle population and uh, control, you know, the grasses that you do have out there, start adding some organic matter, obviously. Uh, if you can get them to do that work for you and you don't have to spend the time and uh, money on fuel to go out and mechanically mow it to stay ahead of it, and it's an effective means of controlling the thistles, I, I think that's one thing I would look at personally. Uh, as far as mowing these things down, I, I, I think you could do a test. I, I guess the uh, the big thing is knowing uh, when you're going to get a heavy rain, knowing well in advance that it's not going to be a sprinkle or a drizzle, but it's going to be a big heavy rain, and you go out there and you mow some of these things down, and you you know, take lots of photographs uh, before and after and kind of monitor it and, you know, see if it works or not. I, I just don't know. Like I said, I've not had to do that. I guess I've been been fortunate. Um, really, the only issue I have here is a uh, what's called a, a wild rose. It's a native uh, thorny species that doesn't produce any rose flowers to speak of and they're very invasive and the cows do the same things they, they basically they, they won't even trample those down they'll just walk around them so we've kind of been left to mechanically deal with those but um you know if you could get somebody else to come in and graze for you i think that would be an excellent option if they can get some free land that that really does become a win-win solution but uh i think beyond that like look if you've got to go mechanically mow it down before those things put on a seed head, then you're you're better off to do that 
uh, just so you can, you know, uh, keep it from getting worse. But if you could afford to get even a few cows and you really start mob grazing those guys down uh, in, in tight spaces, they'll knock this stuff down and they will get it under control just because they'll, they'll knock it down. But the main thing is obviously getting in there and controlling it well before the seed head forms. So I, I wish I had more information for you, Jeremy, but I, I don't. Uh, that's the, <laughs> that's the best advice I have for you is to use the animals to do it. And if you, if you don't have the animals or don't want to have the animals, uh, can't afford the animals, uh, go find a neighbor, put an ad out on Craigslist, uh, network with people in the, uh, you know, the TSP forums, um, do whatever you have to do to, to get some animals in there to, to help control your, uh, your grass population. So those are my thoughts. I appreciate you sending in the question. Uh, if anyone has any advice on this for Jeremy, please be certain to leave those uh, in the comments section on today's show. I'd be happy to read those myself to uh, to see if anyone has tried this, knocking these things down before a heavy rain and seeing if that will actually control them or not. To learn more about me, feel free to check out DarbySimpson.com where you can read all kinds of free blog articles on how to profitably raise and sell uh, pastured poultry, forest-raised pork, grass-fed beef. I also do a weekly podcast. It's about an hour long. It's my good friend Diego Footer. It's called Grass-Fed Life, and you can find that at permaculturevoices.com. I uh, also would like to mention that we have a three-day uh, intensive workshop coming up late in October. It's October 26th through the 28th. It's going to be held just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, in my hometown of Martinsville. It's about 30 minutes outside of Indy. Uh, when I say three-day intensive, I do mean three days of intense study. There are about 16 modules in this course that we walk you through everything from how to raise animals, how to market them, how to run a business, how to run a business profitably, branding, bookkeeping, holistic context, uh, enterprise selection, you name it, we cover it. Uh, this will be the third running. We've sold out both of the first two runnings of that course, and we're well on our way to selling this one out. So if you're interested, head on out to permaculturevoices.com. Check on the uh, the courses that are listed out there and click on the Farm Business Essentials Intensive 3-Day and see if it might be worth your while to join us this October. Even if you don't want to farm full-time, if you want to farm for profit, have a farmsteading enterprise where you're seriously trying to make some money, I would encourage you to check out this course and come hang out with us in October. It's very reasonable, and I promise it'll be worth your while and your time. As always, thanks for sending the questions, guys. Keep them coming. Always happy to answer them. Have a wonderful weekend, and take care. I mean, of course, it depends on acreage and, and things like that, but I will tell you that the animal that I know for a fact, that thistles, wild lettuce, everything like that, will just plum eat it till the ground, till it's eradicated, is the goose. When we first moved here, I had a little bit of thistle, yeah, maybe more than my fair share, I guess, but a ton of prickly lettuce. I mean, it was everywhere. And I remember when the geese got to about, you know, the adolescent stage where they were about, you know, 80% grown, and we let them out of their goose tractor and let them go where they want, they went from clump to clump to clump of the thistle and the, uh, the wild lettuce. Now, they didn't eat it, like some of it had made it pretty far and was really big, and they didn't eat it as heavily, uh, but when it went, you know, when it went to the ground in the, in the winter, and when it came back next spring, they eradicated I don't have any. I have a little bit way in my far back field where none of the birds can get to down by my little pond. Uh, but even there, because they graze us all, it took forever just to even come back there. So I'm not saying that would work for everyone, but man, geese will, 
It's not just that they'll eat it. They'll eat it to the exclusion of other things. Uh, next up, a question for Nurse Amy on developing a first aid kit for your motorcycle. Now, when I set the expert council up and I added Nurse Amy and Doc Bones to it, I thought that's what I would have Nurse Amy and Doc Bones. Doc has answered every freaking question. Do you know how we got Nurse Amy to answer a question? The guy that asked the question said, this question's for Nurse Amy, not Doc Bones. So if you want to put old man Bones to rest once in a while and let him have a break since he is an old man and hear from the awesome Nurse Amy, you know, just point that out once in a while and we'll make sure that we get Nurse Amy on. And with that, Nurse Amy, tell us all about first aid kits for motorcycles. Hi, Amy Alton, Advanced Registered Nurse Practitioner here and also known as Nurse Amy of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Now with close to 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness, I am also the co-author of my husband, whose voice you normally hear, Dr. Joe Alton, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. The essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, plus an entire line of medical kits and supplies, and soon to be announced a new kit during this answer at store.doomandbloom.net. Yes, that's store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Doug, who writes, here's one for Nurse Amy. By the way, thanks, Doug, for this. I appreciate it. He says, Whenever weather permits, I commute on my motorcycle, and I'm interested in her thoughts on a first aid kit to pack. It's about 20 miles each way, mostly on interstate across Indianapolis. I have limited space to carry supplies, so I bring my lunch in a small backpack. I figured the most common accident would be laying a bike down at speed, so there would be a lot of abrasions and bleeding. If it's something more serious, I can't see myself doing much self-aid. What kind of supplies would you recommend? Bandages and clotting supplies? Tourniquets? Thanks for any help, Doug K. Here's a picture of my bike to show there's no storage and because I love it and like showing it off. Nice bike, Doug! Motorcycle injuries can be pretty severe, so as a biker, you know there's always danger when you take the bike out on a highway, more so than cars where airbags, stability control, and other safeguards offer protection in case of a mishap. In fact, today, Dr. Bones and I were driving along and saw an accident smack dab in front of us. Things happened. In fact, the funny thing is there was a motorcycle on the right of us. So had that truck made a U-turn a little bit earlier, it's possible he could have actually hit the motorcycle. So knowing what can happen when accidents do occur is also a really important part of riding. And I have personal experience with riding. Starting when I was age nine, very young, my dad bought me a beautiful Indian 90 that was reddish-orange and had a badass attitude to boot. We did a lot of off-roading cycling, but some on the roads. Of course, we were in the backwoods areas of Georgia, and uh, my brother and I had four acres to explore, and boy, did we have fun and uh, laid down that bike quite a few times, I will have to say. But when you're young, you bounce a little more. So let's talk about uh, what kind of injuries you can expect from 2001 to 2008, the CDC studied more than a million people who were treated in the U.S. emergency rooms for non-fatal motorcycle-related injuries, then recorded their injuries by location on the body. 
30% of all non-fatal motorcycle injuries were recorded on the lower extremities. That makes sense, as whatever leg is draped over the side as you dropped the bike is going to bear some trauma, resulting in at least some road rash, but oftentimes much worse. Leather is the material most often used to protect the abrasions that can occur when you dump the bike, so make sure you cover up those areas with leather. Next most common were head and neck injuries, making up to 22% of the total. Those were closely followed by chest, shoulder, and back wounds, then arms and legs, then hips and pelvis. If you're wearing a helmet, which I strongly suggest, I always wore a helmet. My dad made sure none of us got on our cycles without a helmet. So wear your helmet. In one study, three of five motorcyclists involved in a collision were not wearing helmets and had head injuries as a result of the accident. A helmet can mean the difference between death on the pavement and living to ride another day. When you're riding on a slippery road and some driver decides to make a quick left turn without noticing you're there, accidents happen and it pays to have a compact yet effective kit to deal with injuries and especially bleeding from those injuries. This may involve you or one of your riding buddies. I'm talking about more than just having band-aids and alcohol wipes, although these aren't bad ideas. In the case of bikers, you need a lightweight kit, and we have designed one just for you that you can see at store.doomandbloom.net. This includes the following items that can help you deal with bleeding, orthopedic issues, and more. It's called the Jack Spearco and Doug K Motorcycle First Aid Kit. Oh, no. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> just kidding. It's actually the Motorcycle First Aid Kit, although that first one does sound kind of cool. Gloves. Everyone knows you need gloves. Make sure that you have gloves. In my kit, I have gloves. It's going to protect you against infection and also protect the person who you're taking care of that they don't get what's on your dirty hands. Of course, you want to have a pair of EMT shears or bandage scissors to expose the wounds so you can see what you're dealing with. An H&H vacuum pack dressing weighs next to nothing and takes up little load in your pack. The H&H looks like a small square, but it unfolds when opening to 4 by 12 feet long. It's huge. You can place these in any open wounds for direct pressure and just help stop bleeding. Gauze dressings and rolls to wrap around an injured extremity or head or triangular versions that can act as a sling. Tape or safety pins may be important, and the actual triangular bandages do usually have safety pins in them, so it helps to secure them in place. Tourniquets like CAT, C-A-T, or soft T can help stop heavy bleeding. An alternative to that, which is also lightweight and compact, is a SWAT tourniquet, S-W-A-T, also called stretch, wrap, and tuck. You also might want to consider a pressure dressing. It can serve to slow down and stop bleeding as well, but are also versatile to apply some pressure to a wound. Ace wraps for orthopedic injuries or just to cover wounds. Burn gel and nonstick 4x4 dressings help burns, but also will help cover and take care of road rash. You might want to consider some pain meds like Advil. They have little packs that have two tablets in each packet. A solar mylar blanket to cover an injured biker helps to prevent loss of heat from shock. Small splints might be useful to deal with orthopedic injuries from biker arm and hand injuries where you hold your arm out to brace for impact. 
an expensive but maybe life-saving addition that doesn't add much weight or size to your pack is Sealox or Quick Clot, which are blood clotting gauzes. This stuff will even help arterial bleeding and might just save your life or your buddy's life. Consider antiseptics like alcohol, betadine, or BZK wipes, along with different size bandages, of course, and maybe some Steri strips. My warehouse manager and biker-obsessed friend, Joe Thompson, actually says the highway is one of the safer places to ride because you can create your own area to ride. He suggests wearing high-visibility clothing to let all those people on their cell phones know you're there every time you mount your motorcycle. You take a risk on the road. Protecting yourself greatly lessens those risks, enabling you to live a longer life. And a small medical pack from Doom and Bloom with important items will help you do that. And make sure to wear your safety gear every single time you ride. This is Nurse Amy wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you experienced the joy and satisfaction that goes along with helping the elderly? Well, make an old man, my husband... Very happy and yourself medically prepared by checking out my entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You will be glad you did. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code off anything in the store. Use it to fill those holes in your medical supplies. Thanks for listening. Great stuff from the awesome nurse Amy. Next up, I have a question for Brandon Todd on... Folks that have moved their Coinbase Bitcoin to a paper wallet uh, as they were preparing for uh, the soft fork and now want to put it back in Coinbase or, frankly, anywhere else off of a paper wallet. So how do you get your Bitcoin off a paper wallet back into kind of the game, so to say? And then I added to this question. I, I mean, I advised folks to get out of Coinbase uh, because Coinbase had stated they weren't going to per, uh, support Bitcoin Cash. Apparently now they say they are. So if you had Bitcoin on Coinbase uh, during the fork, supposedly now they're going to support it, and whatever you have, there'll be a matching amount of Bitcoin cash. We'll see. I don't know. They, like I said, they said they weren't going to do it. Um, I went the route of moving the Bitcoin I was holding into the Jack's wallet so that I could then follow either chain I wanted with uh, my Bitcoin because you hold your own keys on Jack's. Um, and Jax is actually going to do the same thing and provide support. So really, unless you want to do something with your Bitcoin now, you don't have to do anything with Jax. You eventually will have the Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. So I asked Brandon when he was asking this question to also say, like, okay, if you did this and now you want to claim, like, let's say you had five Bitcoin, well, now you also have five Bitcoin Cash tokens. And they're worth quite a bit of money right now. right? It's, it's real money. It's not like they're a dollar or something. So how do we get those two? So Brandon... Uh, let's handle both of those. Sorry for doubling your work, man, but uh, I think it's an important one for people to look at. Hey, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer another question for the expert council. This question comes in from Todd R., where he's basically asking, how do I move the Bitcoin I moved onto a paper wallet back into my Coinbase account? little background. He says, I was worried about the August 1st split, and I pulled my Bitcoin from my Coinbase account and onto a paper wallet. I figured the move back would be much easier and obvious than it has turned out to be. I'm worried about vaporizing my paper balance. The instructions on the Coinbase and blockchain sites are a bit ambiguous. A nice clear path of instructions would be appreciated. From Todd. 
Well, I have to agree with you. Um, you know, a lot of those instructions from Coinbase and other uh, Bitcoin uh, websites are very ambiguous, and I don't know why. Um, but, you know, it is it is hard to give really good, perfect directions. If you've never, if everybody thinks it's easier than than uh, you know to do, but uh, just try doing it sometime, and it, it's a great exercise just in um, you know how you think and how it goes into. Uh, written or visual language to convey to somebody else of how to do something. But you would think that they could give better instructions than they have out there for sure. All right. So um, great concerns as well. Um, you want to be careful with this stuff, and it's this stuff is really, really new. So um, let's dig in. So great question from Todd. So let's look at what options we have with this brand-new currency known as Bitcoin Cash. Uh, but first, I'm going to recommend that you move your BTC or, you know, the old legacy Bitcoin to a new BTC address. You know, and like you said, I don't think Coinbase allows for easy sweeping of private keys. So when I say sweeping of private keys, generally speaking, uh, what I mean is if you have uh, your Bitcoin stored on a paper wallet, which is uh, an option that people have to you know, keep their Bitcoin in what we call cold storage, where you just send to a public address that's written down or typed onto a piece of paper, um, you know, really your Bitcoin is just in an unspent output in the blockchain, but you can send to it um, you know, with that paper copy of your public key and usually corresponding QR code um, so when you sweep a, you know, uh, sweep keys, what you're saying is I have a software wallet, usually on my phone or computer, you know, usually that has camera integration integration into the application to where I, you know, I select something in the menu-driven system of my software there, and, and it says, you know, you don't want to sweep your key, yeah, okay. And then you, you push the button, and it opens up your camera, and you take a picture of the QR code of the private key on that paper wallet, and it imports that balance into your now software wallet because you can't spend from a paper wallet. So paper wallets are great for storing Bitcoin in what we call an air gap or, you know, not anywhere that a hacker can get to if you took the right procedure to get it onto a paper wallet without there being a trail somewhere that somebody could, um, you know, hack or take or steal then it's it's safe from any sort of digital digital thievery, right? But the problem is you can't spend from a paper wallet. You can only send to a paper wallet. So when you sweep a private key, you're 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 taking that Bitcoin and transferring it from a paper wallet now onto a key pair that's associated with your software wallet, meaning you have uh, the ability to spend from that wallet and send it to anywhere else you might want to. All right. So you know, so I would, I, after you know, saying all that, I would recommend using either a desktop or a mobile wallet, like I was just talking about, that does that does allow this. Um, after you move your BTC to a new address associated with one of these software wallets, then it should be straightforward to just send to your Coinbase wallet, if you so wish. Pretty sure most software wallets allow importing of private keys these days, but I would recommend either the Mycelium or Jax mobile wallet for importing your BTC. So if you don't have either of these, I suggest picking one and downloading to your smartphone. If you do not have a smartphone, then I'd recommend downloading a wallet application called Electrum to your desktop. I will provide a step-by-step -step tutorial of all three of these options over at my website, CryptoSkim.com. Then just go to the page labeled TSP Questions, then scroll down to find this TSP episode number and description of this response. There you'll find all of this information and links. And if uh, you're new to uh, any of my stuff, CryptoSkim.com 
CryptoSkim.com. Um, Jack will provide a link in the, in the show notes here of my website, CryptoSkim.com, if you wonder how that's spelled. Okay, so after you have confirmed that your BTC is in fact on a new address and is no longer on this paper wallet, then I would recommend downloading a wallet application for BCH or Bitcoin Cash. Now, as I'm submitting this response, August 15th, 2017, there aren't many options to choose from as far as Bitcoin Cash wallets. I know of two that you could try. One is a mobile wallet called Coinami, and another uh, is a fork of a popular Electrum wallet, which I just mentioned earlier, called Electron Cash which is a desktop wallet. So basically with the Coinami wallet, you just download the application to your phone and create a new wallet. Now Coinami is a multi-currency supported wallet. So after you create your seed and write it down, you will then select which currency or currencies you would like to store on your Coinami wallet. Make sure you select BCH or Bitcoin Cash. Then you will just sweep that private paper wallet key into your Coinami wallet. Now you should have advanced your BCH out of that old uh, BTC paper wallet address down the BCH chain and see this on your Coinami wallet display. A quick word on Coinami, uh, I've seen some mixed review reviews of their wallet, but most seem to say it works just fine. Some users complained about Coinami's exchange service feature, which is separate from the wallet function I just outlined. But it's hard to tell if that's just because of some lag issue or whatnot on the exchange. I used, uh, I used it for this demonstration, and it worked fine for me. So now, if you decide to use the desktop wallet application called Electron Cash, which is a fork of the Electrum wallet, like I just said earlier, there is one thing to consider. I'll just read a part of this statement from Electrum.org. Quote, Electron Cash is a fork of the Electrum for Bitcoin Cash. Electron Cash is not endorsed by Electrum. It is open source and binaries or executable files are available for Windows, OS X, and Android. However, when you run binaries instead of source code, you have no guarantee that they match the uh, I'm sorry, you have you have no guarantee that they match the source code. This is why wallet binaries are usually signed by developers. A digital signature engages the responsibility of the person who signs, the person who uh, this person decided to remain anonymous and uses the fake name Jonald Fuikball in order to sign the Electron Cash binaries. Thus, if the binaries contain code that is designed to steal your bitcoins, the author of the theft will be anonymous and walk away safely with your funds. End of quote. Okay, so I will post a link of this full statement with their recommendations of installation procedure. But basically, I did this and imported some Bitcoin Cash from a regular Bitcoin paper wallet into their Electron Cash wallet. I had no problems and experienced no theft of any BTC or BCH. Um, again, I will give a detail. I will give detailed instructions with this uh, with this. Uh, the supporting links over at my website, CryptoSkim.com, under TSP Questions tab, then scroll down until you find this episode number. Uh, the other thing I, I, I could add is if you are in no hurry and are going to hold both of these currencies in the long term still, then I would also give the option of simply doing nothing for a while until we get more solid options worked out for BCH or Bitcoin Cash. So just understand that these are... Uh, very still early days for Bitcoin Cash, and most of these options are quick fixes or wallets sort of in beta at this point. 
most likely there will be better options down the road. But I totally understand if you want to move, sell, or trade either of these coins right now. Hope all of this helps. Uh, this is Brandon from Crypto Skim signing off. Great stuff from Brandon. Again, really feel grateful that he's with us. Um, next question I have is for Mike and Sue LaPreece on the concept of tax vouchers for homeschoolers. And Mike and Sue are going to tell you the same thing I am, that that's probably a bad thing. And, well, Mike and Sue, tell them why. Hey, everyone. It's Michael and Sue LaPreece with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. We're delighted to share our experience on another homeschool question today and hope our fun share is an encouragement and inspiration to everyone, even if homeschooling isn't going to work for you. Today's question comes from Mike in Magnolia. Do you have any experience with tax vouchers or breaks for homeschoolers since you aren't using the school system? The simple answer is no. Thank you, Jesus. Up until this year, the state of Texas has actually allowed parents to be in charge of their own kids, and we've been very thankful for that. But I'm sad to report that that is probably about to change. There is a bill currently in process here in Texas to provide ESAs to homeschool and private school families. This is an education savings account that, in theory, would allow a family to spend the tax dollars they gave the state. The state would, in quotes, give back funds to parents for them to spend on their children's education. I'm sure you know how responsible Uncle Texas feels when they take the good citizens' money and give it to someone else. What are you willing to give up by way of freedom for that money? Think about how the federal government, the Department of Education, operates. We send them income tax dollars that they then return a portion of those dollars back to the states. But if the states don't abide by what Washington dictates, they threaten to withhold funding. I foresee the same thing happening at the state level when the state gives you money, there will always be strings attached. Let's look at what makes a state a good homeschool state versus a bad homeschool state, and you can decide for yourself if the money back is worth it. Currently, the Cato Institute has the top states listed for homeschooling as number one, Alaska, <laughs> number two, Oklahoma, and we actually know people who moved to Oklahoma for the non-property tax law and excellent homeschool laws, number three, Utah, and Texas falls in at number 13. The good news in Texas is there is a statute on the books that allows for homeschooling as a legal option for educating. We could argue about whether that rule needs to be there or not, but in the current legal climate, we're thankful for that law. Next, you have the notification rule. Great homeschool states assume that parents have their children's best interests at heart, and if you send your kids to government school, the government school counts you. If you send them to private school, the private school counts you. And if you homeschool, well, who cares? Which is more like, who cares at 1%, but, hmm, 4% of homeschoolers is reaching state caring level. Now, if you're taking state funds, you're pretty cheerful about stepping forward and being counted. The more the state helps the homeschool family, the more control they need to take, the state that is. The next step comes in the form of curriculum selection. When our eldest was two, we lived in Rhode Island, and at the time you had to be approved by the teacher who your child would have for the year, and they would be helpful in providing the curriculum for you. When we moved back to Texas in 1989, and I called to see what the rule was here, the lady laughed her head off about the school providing a homeschool or anything. 
which was perfect because by the time our eldest was ready for kindergarten, he'd already finished a pretty awesome, diverse second grade program of free materials given to us from a variety of resources. For the early years, we found that curriculum can get in the way of spontaneous learning that happens all around us every day. Today, for example, after math, piano, and writing, the few standard curriculums we use due to the mastery learning principle that we follow, the kids were working the Matt Powers permaculture course outside because it was beautiful, and they've added some tree shapes to our plot map, learning to measure long stretches and angles, and we've been harvesting seeds like crazy this year. Totally beats the crap out of a bean and a paper towel in a Ziploc. But when the state is helping and giving you money, they're going to be super careful that you only buy the best state-approved curriculum. So you get that going for you, don't you? Now, with your free money, the state is going to make sure you're using it in an accountable way. So they're going to follow the don't expect what you don't inspect rule. And they're going to further help you with some awesome standardized testing. You know the ones that are so super amazing and awesome that they keep changing them every few years. Well, early on, we actually did two years of standardized testing, spent about $35 per kid, four days in a classroom doing testing for kindergarten, second, and fifth grade. I think those are their ages. And not once, but twice, everything the test told me I already knew. My eldest was an amazing reader and a horrible speller, which is still true of him at the age of 29. That was it for us because I couldn't figure out how it made sense to pay $100 for information I already knew. But the good news that the state tests they'll let you take are free, except for the taxpayer paying about $500 for each test to be carefully administered and graded. It's quite an industry. Teaching to the test or preparing for a test that is supposed to simply show what you know seems pretty absurd, but of course salaries and cool labels accompany the schools that get good grades well actually the schools that find the loopholes to show only the good grades but that's another story let's say for math i teach my kids for mastery learning and they only make it through algebra one by the time they graduate but they're really good at it are they any worse off than the kid who did poorly in algebra two or a more advanced math Ten years after they graduate from high school, will it matter? I'll let you think about that. Then you have teacher qualifications. Should homeschool parents have a degree? Should they be certified in each subject they teach? Should they have to take a test to prove they can teach their own kids? We addressed some of this in an earlier episode, that only if the state teachers have to follow the same testing rules. So every teacher has to have a first year of teaching, whether you homeschool teach at a private school, government school, for kindergarten, or all the way up through PhD-level classes. Yet every year, a homeschool parent doesn't get a whole new set of students, nor do they have 20 or more students. In most states, the homeschool family gets to pick the curriculum that works best for their family and adjust it to meet their individual needs. we found that instead of wishing for that free money from the state that is as slick as duck poo when it comes to the government give you ever more help, that we'd make good choices with our own money that they're kind enough to leave us. Through the years, we've added more homeschool saving options from having co-op at our house so we don't have to pay facility fees and deal with bureaucrats at the 501c3s. We share curriculum, um, buying curriculums that, that easy to reuse over and over again, using the great Google universe, 
the library, and other available free resources. Then as a family this year, we've added foraging to our learning and fun money-saving options. From purse laying growing like crazy in our yard for a nice quiche to wild chili pekins in the local vacant lot nearby that we're making our own hot sauce out of, there are many reasons that people choose to homeschool. But ours has always been for the freedom to learn in our own way and at our own pace. There's nothing like a handout from Uncle Texas to curtail freedom. Well, it may sound good on the surface to gather some government funds for your family. We'd like you to ask yourself, what will that cost you? Do you want a state monitor who can come by your home and check up on you whenever they feel necessary? Do you want your parental freedom to be regulated? As diehard homeschoolers, we'd like to encourage all of you out there in TSP land to start imagining what it might take for your kids to be at home with you. What if compulsory education ended? What if it wasn't mandatory to send your kids to school and there was no specific set of rules for them learning? What might that look like for your family? What would education look like in America if 20% of the families didn't send their kids to the government or private school systems? Well, that's it for the question, but feel free to send Jack some specific questions on how to homeschool. Maybe a certain subject or age level that you're struggling with, a reluctant learner, or an overachiever. Or maybe your family has both. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com for the Expert Council. Thanks again, Jack, for all you do. And remember, everyone, freedom allows you to design the life you'd love to live. So I actually had a very similar debate uh, about this very issue um, at a federal level with uh, a good friend and member of this audience named Jake uh, back when Ted Cruz was running for the presidency. And uh, he sponsored a, a bill that would basically have given homeschoolers the ability to declare their, their – to basically make homeschools into private schools so they could qualify for some of the same tax advantages. Sounds like a good thing, right? And what he said was, well, then if you had a farm and there was a grant to get, let's say, a high tunnel, because we've talked about that on here – Wouldn't you go ahead and use that grant? Well, yeah, that doesn't mean that I would try to put that grant into place. And I would also look very carefully at, well, what does that grant require of me? If it requires that I do things with the tunnel that I was going to do with it anyway, then I would probably use the grant. It doesn't mean I would go out of my way to get the grant put into place. But what we're talking about here really isn't a grant. It's more like a subsidy. But it's even worse than that. See, what I'm worried that Texas is going to do here is it's not going to become something voluntary. See, if it's all it's voluntary, and then you can say, well, what, what deal am I making to get this tax deduction, tax advantage, whatever? That's fine. What I'm concerned with, and I think you'll see coming more and more into homeschooling because the state wants to control it, is this is how it works. This is see that's that's my real concern. Now I will tell you this, you know, putting in a high tunnel and educating your children are not equivalencies. They're not equivalencies, and I would not take anything if I were homeschooling from the state at all. If it came with even one condition, because if it comes with one, that condition can be added to. If it came with no conditions. 
uh, or it came with conditions that I saw as being reasonable, and I did choose to take it, then whatever financial advantage it gave to me would go into a savings account. I would not use it. I would not rely on it for a second. So that if ever we got to that point that Mike and Sue were talking about, we say, well, if you want this, you got to do that. Well, then piss off. But see, you don't understand. We're gonna. Th- I, I know. I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, imagine when states stood up for states' rights, and the federal government said, "Well, we're going to keep your money." The states that were standing up for states' rights said, "Okay, go ahead." No, we're going to sue you. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's fine. I don't care. Doesn't work that way, though, does it? Because the state has no discipline when it comes to money. If money goes into a state's budget, whether it's big ass, little ass, doesn't matter. It gets spent. That's what you can never do. If you ever end up in any situation where you're accepting any sort of subsidy, grant, etc., from the government, it needs to be gravy, right? If you get your kid all the way through school, like let's say, let's say you got some kind of a, a, a subsidy, grant, whatever from the state for education of a child, and it came to two thousand dollars a year. Did otherwise you would have had to pay them, or they paid you back, or whatever it is. Okay, and you put that money away for twelve years, twenty-four grand, nice life establishment fund, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Jack Spirico does not say college fund. I do not believe in college funds for your children. I think a college fund for your child is the dumbest thing you could do. If you see, it's another thing. It's restrictions, restrictions, right? See, I believe restrictions on your money that you save for your child should be. Well, if you're doing drugs, uh, you don't get the money. If you're not being responsible in your life, you don't get the money. Uh, if you're running around getting arrested every other week, you don't get the money. If you're laying in a pit of your own vomit once a week from being drunk, you don't get the money. Those are the conditions that should be placed upon money that you put aside for your children's future. Because you give somebody in those positions money, they'll make their time and life worse. But why would you give a child? Money with the condition being, well, you have to go to school or lose 20% of it to some kind of penalty. Because you did a 529A plan or something like that. It's retarded. You don't know if your kid's going to be smart enough to go to college. You don't know if your kid's going to want to go to college. Well, I want them to have a real life. I don't want to be a loser. What if they want to fly helicopters? Does that sound like a loser job to you? Does flying helicopters sound like, I want to know from, is there anybody out there that would say, that's a shitty job, Jack. That's just like shoveling shit out of a ditch, flying helicopters. Why the hell would you want that for your kid? Well, do you know that if you put your money into a college fund that you can't withdraw without penny penalty to send your child or let your child decide to pursue a career in aviation as a rotor wing pilot? You got it yet? So you have no idea what opportunities could come up. And, gee, I just think the whole college system is going to be falling on its ass. So maybe that's not a good idea. So that would be the only way I would do it. If there's no conditions and it's voluntary, and if they put conditions on, I can walk away. Because if they put conditions on and I can't walk away, that means they're going to do it to me anyway. So I might as well take the money. right? But if there's conditions, if it's like, well, if you take this money, then you have to do standardized touching, just piss off. I don't need you. That's that's why why are you doing homeschooling in the first place? To not have to use their curriculum is a big part of it. Because their curriculum sucks. Okay? It sucks. It sucks. Self-directed learning. You teach reading, you teach writing, you teach math. You teach basic science and basic history. 
And then those skills are used to learn any other skill set, any other knowledge set. And they expand when you do that. This is my thoughts on that one. Next up, I have a question on health share accounts versus health insurance. And that came into me, and I said, no, 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 no. John Pugliano has one of these. He's used it. He's the expert. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question comes from Dan, and Dan is asking about health share programs in lieu of traditional health insurance. Now, I'm not going to go into all of Dan's personal situation that he included in the email, but Dan, I'll just tell you this. Your situation is very, very similar to what I used to be in once Obamacare kicked in and was supposed to lower the cost of health insurance. Well, again, I won't go into all the details, but as a small business guy, I'm required to provide my own insurance. I had a Humana plan. That plan was canceled by Humana because it didn't meet the Obamacare standards. And as a result, within the first year, my premiums under the new Obamacare went up like 50% from what I had been paying. And I eventually dumped that policy, so I'm not sure exactly where it's at. But pretty much the last time I looked at it, it would be about $1,000 a month as a premium. This is for a family with two adults and two dependent kids. It has a very high deductible in excess of $12,000, and it's a really crappy HMO. So it's far inferior to what I had prior to Obamacare. In any case, Dan's question is, what do I think about health share programs versus traditional health insurance? For those of you that aren't aware about health shares, there's been a number of Christian health shares. And I say Christian because those are the only ones I'm aware of. There probably were other faiths that did it as well. And what these health share programs did was rather than offering a traditional insurance policy, they pulled together a group of like-minded individuals. In this case, it was faith-based. Now, prior to the modern era of the fascist health system that we're in now, this was a common practice, and it wasn't limited to only faith-based systems. It used to be done by labor unions. It was done by business organizations. It was done by just general groups of people that wanted to affiliate with each other. For example, you know, the, the Elks Lodge or the Royal Order of the Moose or whatever different clubs and fraternities that people used to join um, they would band together and they would form mutual organizations that took care of each other when they, or there was a problem, like a death or a medical emergency. And so it wasn't traditional health or life insurance necessarily, but it functioned that way. So, for example, 75 or 100 years ago, maybe you belonged to the Carpenters Union, and it was just your local affiliate and organization of all just carpenters, and you guys pulled your resources together and you took care of each other. Well, as the modern era evolved and we got more and more government and big corporate interest in healthcare, those organizations went away. And pretty much, for the most part, the only ones that were able to survive were the faith-based groups. And that's because they kind of fell under the radar and within the bounds of freedom of religion. The other groups were pretty much more or less forced out of the marketplace. I'll let you draw your own conclusions as to why that might have happened or who may have been pushing that agenda. But the bottom line is, when Obamacare was enacted four or five years ago, they grandfathered in four of the remaining faith-based health care systems. As far as I know, all four are still in business. I happen to be a member of one of these. And Dan, it's not the one that you mentioned in your email. 
The health share that I'm a part of is called Liberty Health Share. You can go to their website at libertyhealthshare.org. I've been a member for, I think, going on three or four years. I've been extremely happy with it. Dan, like you, my family is very low maintenance as far as health care. We're, we're blessed with good health. We're not on any type of maintenance uh, prescriptions or anything like that. The one time that we've really had to use this since I've been part of it uh, was when one of my kids had to go to an emergency room. And although there was a little bit of a hassle there because the hospital was not cooperative, Liberty did pay all the bills and it worked out. And I would say no worse or no more aggravation than any uh, traditional health insurance program that I've ever been part of. I in particular like Liberty HealthShare over the other couple health shares that I looked at for a couple reasons. Let me give them to you. First of all, it's very affordable. And in, like I say, the three or four years I've been a part of it, I don't think my premium has ever gone up. And what I like even better than the low cost of the monthly health share is that my deductible as a family is only $1,500. That's $1,500 a year. I mentioned since Obamacare has kicked in, my previous annual deduction was more than $12,000 a year. So this is a fantastic program. The numbers that I'm quoting are all available on their website. I'm just doing this for informational purposes only, libertyhealthshare.org. You can see the different programs. Some of these programs are less than that, but I really like what's called their Liberty Complete, which is basically a full-service health insurance and they claim to cover medical bills for up to a million dollars per incident. A couple other things about Liberty HealthShare that are different from some of the other programs I looked at. Uh, number one is you can even get this if you have a pre-existing condition. They just have limits to how much they will cover for that pre-existing condition for the first couple years. So maybe they'll only cover 25% of costs for the first year, but by the time you get into the third or the fourth year, you're totally phased into the program and they'll cover everything. Now, while they don't have a specific list of doctors that you have to use, basically what they do is they reimburse doctors up to, I believe, 120% of what Medicare would pay. So, it, again, this is just my experience, but it's been my experience that most doctors, most hospitals will accept that level of reimbursement for procedures. You may run into a problem where a doctor or a hospital doesn't accept that, in an emergency situation, I personally know that Liberty HealthShare did pick up the full charges from an emergency room visit, even when the hospital wouldn't give us an insurance discount and charged extortionary prices. You know, Liberty HealthShare still came through and paid the bill. One of my adult daughters, her and her husband are entrepreneurs, so they have to provide their own health care. They've been with Liberty, I think, for maybe two years now. They're just getting ready to have their first baby, and this is all being picked up and covered by Liberty HealthShare. Now, a couple caveats to this, you do have to be a Christian to belong to Liberty HealthShare, and that's because it's run by a Christian organization. And before you get mad at them and say they're discriminating, you know, my thoughts on this is the, the biggest reason there's discrimination involved in this is by being under the clause of a, a faith-based program, it's the only way they can exist to begin with. So don't get mad at Liberty HealthShare, get mad at the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. that force these kind of structures to exist. I will say this. Unlike other programs that I've heard of, Liberty HealthShare is very liberal in their definition of Christian. And I just say that from the perspective of I've heard of other organizations that require a meeting or you have to have a letter from your pastor or something like that. Liberty HealthShare just requires you to state that you're a Christian. They don't care if you're a Christian Catholic or a Christian Jehovah Witness. I imagine they wouldn't care if you're a Christian deist. There's no articles of faith or anything like that that you have to conform to other than the fact that you have to be a Christian. 
I don't remember off the top of my head, but I also think they won't cover you if you're a smoker. And that doesn't have anything to do with Christianity, but with all insurance-type programs, they're looking to attract people with healthy lifestyles. And so I don't think they'll take you on if you're an active smoker or if you're a heavy drinker. Again, I don't remember the full application, but I do know that they ask you how much alcohol you consume a week. Consumption of alcohol doesn't exclude you. But again, I think if you're an alcoholic or a heavy smoker, they're not going to insure you. So the bottom line, Dan, is that I'm telling you, as far as I'm concerned, I think these health shares are a really good program. This might be something you want to look into. Thank you for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. So I guess one could be, just on the end point there, a Jeffersonian Christian. And I'll let you figure it out for yourself if you don't know what it means. But it's kind of sort of a deist Christian. Yeah. Anyway, um, next up I have a question for Nicole Awesome Sauce on the awesomeness of stinging nettles. Why the hell would you want to play with stinging nettles? Nicole will tell you. Nicole, take it away. Hello, TSP. Nicole Sauce here taking a question from Peaches over on the TSP Zello channel. Beaches writes, what do I do with stinging nettle? I have found a big patch of stinging nettle on my property and don't know what to do with it. Do I dig it up or leave it there? I've heard it's edible, but don't know how to use it also. If me or my kids get into it, how bad is the sting and how do I treat it? Oh, you who are rarely targeted by malicious sorcery and magic may be wondering why on earth risk the nettle's searing wrath by wandering into a patch to pick these prickling little plants. It turns out that stinging nettle is actually more than an antidote to fancy-schmancy necromancy. In fact, the nettle is acclaimed by many herbalists as a legitimate curative for a range of common ailments from arthritis to IBS. In fact, when I discover, I will tell you how I discovered stinging nettle or urtica dioica. I was on a hike in the woods and I, you know, I knew what stinging nettle was. I'd been stung as a kid and sat down on a log and put down my hand and it was early spring and something hurt. And I looked down and I looked at my hand and it had a little red rash starting. And I realized I was actually sitting in a patch of stinging nettle. And the background of this, it had taken me days to get my butt out the door to go on this hike because I could barely wake up in the morning. I was so tired all the time. It had been a very dark winter. And I went up on this hike only because Mark made me, honestly, found the plant. And I was like, well, that's interesting. This plant has just spoken to me. I will go read about it. And I happen to have, I always have a foraging bag with me. So I picked some uh, without getting stung and put it in the bag and came down the hill. And I noticed like on the place on my hand where I'd gotten stung, it was, it, it kind of hurt at first, but then it just was numb. I could, I just, it was like, I would touch that part of my finger and it would be numb. So I thought that, well, that's interesting. And I went online And as I researched more and more about stinging nettle, I learned that it is fairly high in vitamin D, and it turns out to be really good for women at a certain phase in their life to um, drink the tea that I might be in right now. And it, it has a lot of health benefits.
In fact, reading about stinging nettle, it was almost like reading about dandelions, which seems to be another of nature's cure-alls. Um, it is used for urinary tract issues. As I said earlier, it is used for IBS. It is said to help stimulate milk flow in um, nursing mothers. It is used for rheumatoid problems and colds. And it's packed with vitamins that are really, really good for you. So it's an awesome plant to learn about and get to know better and not be afraid of just because of the sting. So let's start with the sting. Why does stinging nettle sting you? Well, if, if you look at the plant, you will see a series of little needles sticking out. Needles. I love that word. Needles sticking out of the stem and the stemmy part of the leaf. And those deliver formic acid. And, and so formic acid is what causes the sting. So if you pick the plant, so the, if you notice, they're, they're all angling up. And you can double check this because all not, not all plants are created equally and there's always one that will do something different than you expect. So you will notice the hairs that deliver the chemical are all pretty much growing in one direction. And so if you harvest the plant going in the same direction, you're much less likely to break one of these hairs and have the formic acid Delivered to your skin, causing irritation and rash. The other thing you'll notice about a stinging nettle is that the leaves, the top of the leaves, tend to not have these hairs. It's the underside that tends to have them. So you can also fold the leaf carefully, like using its own leaf to be your harvester. I've done that a few times. However, the best thing to do is just put on a pair of gloves if you don't want to get stung. People over time who work with stinging nettle a lot either become very good at harvesting it or perhaps less sensitive to the sting of a stinging nettle. Now, you asked me how to treat yourself if you get stung by the stinging nettle. And to be honest, I've never actually tried to treat it once I got stung. I just waited 45 minutes and was fine. And as I said, I had a lingering numbness when I've been stung. I have not gotten stung very badly. However, Somebody wrote me a note about three weeks ago because a friend of mine had her whole hand covered in a red rash from stinging nettle. And I had posted a a picture on Facebook and they said, because the formic acid is an acid and baking soda is a base, you can, you can help neutralize that by putting baking soda on it. Now, I don't know if this is true because I've never tried it myself, but I would say if you ever do get stung and don't want to just give it time, give it a shot. The the logic there seems to make sense to me. Now, let's talk about using stinging nettle safely. So I talk about all the stinging and the rash and the acid, and you're thinking, why would I put that in my mouth, even if I do need to treat IBS? Well, for those of you who have had IBS, you're probably like, you know what, I'll try anything at this point. And neutralizing the formic acid in stinging nettle is not all that hard to do. All you have to do is boil it. So you can take the leaves, throw it in boiling water, and the formic acid is neutralized. And so you can just eat that as you wish. And I have to admit, the first time I ever tried this, I was a little scared. 
But I did it anyway. Another way to neutralize the formic acid is to dry the leaves. So if you're taking the leaves and harvesting them and then drying them for tea, you no longer have the formic acid issue. So those are the two ways that I know to take stinging nettle and make it so it doesn't sting you anymore so that you can use it in a couple of different ways. Now, tea is a great way to deliver a plant that is rich in calcium, vitamin A, and vitamin D especially in the dark months of winter. And one of my favorite tea recipes is to take about two tablespoons of dried stinging nettle leaves, add to that two bee balm leaves, two blackberry leaves, also dried because it's winter, and then a little bit of mint. And I just pour that into the old teapot and let it steep for a few minutes. It makes, makes an awesome morning tea, and it's an awesome morning tea that's really good for you. Another way to use stinging nettle that is not tea is to make a nettle soup. And here is how you make a spell-breaking nettle soup. I take about a quarter bushel of fresh nettle tops. This means you've gone out to the patch. I use scissors. I have a leather glove on one hand and scissors in the other hold them and I cut the tops off before they've bloomed preferably. And then I come, I get about a quarter bushel. So, you know, like that quarter bushel basket you see at the farmer's market. I hope you're going to your farmer's market and you see those and you just cut the leaves off uh, from the stem. So you don't want to put the woody stem in. You want to make sure you're having really the tenderest parts of the stinging nettle and you boil them in a stock pot of salted water to to deactivate the sting for, you know, just like a minute will do it. Then you drain it. And then in that same stock pot, you add about a quart of stock of any kind or broth that you've made, stock or broth, and then throw in a couple of peeled and diced potatoes. I actually don't peel them. I throw in an onion. I throw in some garlic and I just let that Boil like blazes for about 45 minutes to 60 minutes. And then towards the end, I get my stick blender out and I puree that all up. So it becomes almost like a bisque. And what's good in a bisque? About a third of a cup of of heavy cream is good in a bisque. So at the very end, I add the cream. I salt and pepper to taste, and then you just serve it like you would a really yummy bisque with maybe a dollop of sour cream and a sprig of sage. That soup is fantastic. The other way I like to use it is just as a pesto. So take any pesto recipe you like, and instead of the basil leaves, you put in the stinging nettle leaves. Again, with the caveat that you have boiled them before you throw them into your pesto, because what you don't want is to give somebody stinging nettle mouth. And if you're wondering what in the world does stinging nettle even taste like, well, it's kind of an oaky, woody, nutty flavor. It's pretty good, and it's definitely worth the effort of of harvesting this. Now, if you have stinging nettle somewhere on your property, I would just let it grow there. But I do like to observe in our area here, it tends to grow in sort of shady areas that stay relatively moist, so near creeks or runoff areas. And so I encourage it to grow where I know it grows, but I have dug it up and moved it from one part of the holler to another part of the holler. I had a really good patch going actually about two years ago, but I did not mark it properly. And the mowing man came, who I also live with, and he basically mowed it down to the ground and it's dead. So I am starting another nettle patch there. I have found that transplanting the plants works better than trying to go from seed 
And I'm sure you've heard Jack talk about using stinging nettle as something perhaps to plant under your windows or along your fence lines if you're trying to keep intruders out. But if you have it growing on your property, Peaches, by all means, don't move it. Leave it there. Tell your kids what it is. They'll get stung a few times. Life will go on. And as regards how bad is this thing, well, go out and grab one. No, just kidding. Um, It kind of hurts when I get stung, but not all that badly, although I usually only get stung in small places. As I said, my friend who picked up her cooler in a big patch of very lush stinging nettle with probably very long hairs filled with formic acid had act- not just a rash but some blistering, and I imagine that smarted quite a bit. However, the sting doesn't last that long, so it's it's not like a bee sting that sticks with you for days. It's It's more like a sting that kind of goes away rather quickly and then leaves a residual numbness. Thank you, Peaches, so much for your question. I hope you enjoy the good fortune that you have for having stinging nettle in your yard and that you're able to collect enough for some yummy winter teas and maybe a good round of stinging nettle soup. Keep the questions coming, everybody. And Jack, I am looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this fantastic plant. I think you said you studied to become an herbalist at one point, so I'm sure you have a lot more opinions about the plant than I do. Thank you, TSP community, and thank you, Jack. Make it a great week. You know, the truth is, stinging nettle is just some awesome stuff. And I've never tried this, okay? But I've seen people do it, and, I, and I've never seen it go wrong. And I guess you would think about, you know, acid in your stomach is kind of place that acid belongs. But I've seen people take a stinging nettle leaf, and, and you grab it so that the sting inside is, is not exposed to you, and you fold it up like a little package, and you just eat it raw. You don't chew it. You just kind of put it in your mouth, macerate it a little bit, and swallow it. And I've seen people do it on YouTube and stuff like that. I've seen people do it in person. I'm not going to do it, but I think uh, it, it probably does work. I'm not suggesting you do. I'm really not. I'll tell you another great use for stinging nettles. If you have gardens that are occasionally, oh, I don't know, borrowed from, and you don't really want them borrowed from, plant some stinging nettles here and there around and within them. Because most people that steal from gardens don't know what's what. They, oh, there's a tomato. Yeah, and when they reach the stinging nettles, maybe they'll go bother somebody else's stuff. Also, you know, if you have, like, a place where people are constantly getting through a fence or something to vandalize stuff, big old patch of stinging nettles, yeah, that'll that'll learn their ass, especially if you mix it up with some rosa ragusa so you get some good scratches with it. <laughs> yeah, there's always creative ways to use, you know, plants and food, and that brings me to my, my segment today. And uh, I almost just really didn't do anything with this, um, but... It kind of made me think on a bigger scale than just applying to me. So Charles says this to me about what I always say about cooking, like is I don't really use recipes. I just add more if I think it needs more, or I think, oh, that'll go good with that, and I advise you to do it too. He says the reason you're able to cook without measuring and are able to anticipate how something will test while you're cooking, Jack, is that you have culinary intuition. It's a thing. I will tell you that the other day I was doing some stir-fry and I threw a little extra fish sauce in it and my intuition failed me. And it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't good either. So even those of us with culinary intuition can make mistakes. Um, but what it really made me think of is 
Well, what else is a thing when it comes to having intuition or natural talent? And I think that we can overplay this because here's what I would I would acknowledge. I probably do have culinary intuition. Um, there were all kinds of things I wanted to make when I was a kid, and it all said, ah, it won't be good. And when, as soon as I got enough freedom to be able to do it, I threw that shit together, and it was good. It was really good. And uh, including some of like parents and uncles and stuff were like, oh, that's, that's really good. You made that? Yeah. Um, so you just kind of have intuition. But what it makes me think of is like, I remember sitting in grade school, and you know, you're doodling some bullshit, making a happy face or some crap like that, or... When I was a kid, you know, MTV was big. That's when MTV had music videos on it. I know it's freaking crazy, but it did. And, you know, we all learned how to draw the MTV sign, the M, the three-dimensional M, and that's pretty simple and all. But then some dude would just be sitting there spacing out when the teacher was talking, and he would be drawing, like, this amazing landscape, or he'd be drawing the classroom. And it looked like high-end art. How do you do that? No, I just do it. And I was a good mechanic, but I remember one guy I worked with, this guy could almost look at a vehicle from a distance and tell you what was wrong with it. And it wasn't just kind of like, I would get to where an operator would tell me, well, it's doing this or it's doing that. Oh, it's probably this. Like The truck would pull in, he'd go, oh, that needs, that needs a new clutch. And it didn't even really kind of stumble or whatever, just like, he just know it. Just, you know, or you'd be troubleshooting something, he'd walk out and go, oh, that's what's wrong with it. He just had that mechanical intuition I guess and I think I think one of the things that we need to be doing with this piece of information here is a couple things one people like me when I'm talking about how to cook something need to be a little bit more aware of their own intuition so that you don't I think sometimes when I'm doing a show on cooking or certain other things I make it sound too simple to the point where you're like I don't know what to do And if you can say, well, you just use as much as you think you need, you can say, well, that's about a handful, right? So I think when we're teaching something that we have, and I think that maybe that be one, might be one of the issues here, when you're really, really good at something naturally, not through study and, and, and development and time and technique and experience, but when you're teaching something that you just picked up and did, you're not that great a teacher, I think I'm pretty good about talking about cooking and getting you excited about it and giving you some ideas and getting you to go do it. And if you sort of kind of know what you're doing already, you can do it. Um, but otherwise, not so much. I was the same way with computers. Um, I'm self-taught with computers. I was using computers when I was, what, nine, ten years old. I had my first Commodore. Um, my buddy, I had a buddy named David in Jacksonville. And uh, we were probably 11 we were on like the first chat boards. We were on the internet before it was an internet, before Al Gore created it, right? And when I try to tell my wife how to do something on the computer, I just can't do it. I can't stand over, so I'm like, let me get in there and I'll show you, and then you figure it out, right? Um, but I can't explain it. I just know what to do. And a lot of times I'm not even sure what to do, but as soon as, I, as, soon as you let me look at it clear, I can figure it out. So those of us that are teaching skills that we're just naturally good at need to either defer to a teacher that learned more through a traditional study or take more time and effort to convey what we have. Conversely, I think what we all need to be looking for is what is it that we have that intuition and natural talent for? Because it is in general in doing those things that we're happiest. 
You know, I often say that when I was in corporate sales, I was miserable. That's true and it's false. That's true and it's false. 80% of the corporate sales job is prospecting, kissing people's asses, doing forecasts, explaining shit to management, fighting your own company on behalf of your customers so that they will give the customer the thing that they promised the customer in the first place. Stuff like that. Explaining to customers that they're not entitled to something just because they feel like they are. All of these things are like 80% of sales. 20% of sales is actually making the deal and closing the deal. It's going in and talking to someone who you finally got an audience with and saying, let's talk about your systems, let's talk about your problems, let me propose my solutions, and let me help you figure out how to implement them. Do you know what? I loved that 20% of my job. And you know how much training I have in it? From like people above me training me like in some formal manner? None. None. Zero. It was all self-doubt. I did a lot of reading, a lot of self-study, a lot of audio tapes back in the day because that's how long ago that was. But in the end, it was natural. It was na Once I had the knowledge, the technical knowledge necessary, then the, the entire sales process was just easy. And I love that because it was na I was naturally talented at it. So what you have to do, whether it's career or entrepreneurship, is find the things you have those natural talents for and then do everything you can to make sure that most of what your effort is is based and grounded on those things. Now, you're always going to have to come up with some sort of supporting, some kind of supporting uh, uh, roles that you're going to have to fulfill. But see, the, the position I was in in sales was, was completely ass backwards. You should be doing 80 to 90% of that thing that you're naturally gifted at, you're naturally great at, you have that intuition for, and only 10 to 20% of the supporting role. So if you're a great salesman, and what you want to do is be in front of the customer, solve the problem, initiate the contract, and get that customer to buy over and over and over again, and beat, that, beat the pants off of any competitor, then the sales job you need is one with a very strong inside sales program. And something that you know has some sort of level of administrative assistant for a top salesperson. Had I had that with the right product and the right company, I might still be doing it today. I don't know. I'm glad I'm not. But I might be because when it came down to it, I loved that. But I'll tell you what I love the most, and I think I have the biggest knack for, the biggest intuition for, is teaching. I am a teacher at heart. That's what I love to do more than anything else. I have a friend that's told me, you will fight with a person to make them learn. I've seen you do it. I've seen you sit there talking to someone with a mental block for 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden I've seen it, it goes in, and a light bulb goes on, and they get it, and they're happy, and I think, well, I guess he won. And I'm like, no, dude, I didn't win. They won. That's what's in it for me is seeing the other person win, seeing the mind open seeing the understanding come, the embracement of knowledge, and realizing like that person now is going to take that shit, and they're going to go do something with it they would have never done. And it's going to magnify and multiply for who knows how long. How many other people are they going to go to? And they might actually be able to get that information into somebody like them easier than it was for me. Because I had to go 
block A, block B, block C. Let's twist this around. Show, like, and once I figured out what made it go in, in this, you know, tab A went to slot B, jump, it went on. They're like, oh, okay. So then anybody that's like them, they'll just go straight to that. Here's how I got it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because every time you deal with people, right, on a new issue and a new topic at a different level, you have to find what works for them. You know, when I'm on the air, I'm just kind of doing like the broad spectrum shotgun blast. But when I work with people individually, I have to like figure out, okay, what's holding you back on this? And I'm not talking about win them over to my idea. I'm actually like, this is how this works. Whether what I think about it, what you think about it is irrelevant. This is how this works. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. Whether it's a philosophical idea like, you know, the invisible hand in our system or this is why your plants are dying. There, there are certain things that are just factual and you figured them out and conveying those things, including how to think rather than what to think, right? How to think, how to pick apart at the thing. So my challenge for you on this Friday is what are your natural talents? And sometimes they're hard to figure out, but they're never hard to recognize. Let me say that again. They're, sometimes they're very hard to find, but they're never hard to recognize. The natural talent you have, when you're doing it, you're completely contented. And you'll go through suffering and anguish to get to a place where you can do them. You'll have a job where 80% of it sucks because that 20% is great. Now you got to do is flip it around, right? And I believe that if we all figure out where we have that intuition, and it's probably not a place, it's probably multiple places, But then you bring as much of that into your life as possible, and you bring yourself as much prosperity, stability, resiliency, and joy as you possibly can. And again, it's back on what I was talking about yesterday. We have been so lied to, folks, that to seek out your own happiness is selfish in a negative way, is a preposterous thing. Now, there's well intention behind that, which is why it's an easy lie to sell. I mean... You can't abdicate your responsibility for your kids. Like, yeah, you have to put food on the table for your children. You can't say, well, you know, I'm happiest wandering through the woods, so I'm just going to quit my job, wander through the woods, and leave my kids without a father and without food on the table and thrown out of their house and living in a shelter and say that you're responsible, right? Responsibility has to be balanced against the desires in your heart and the things that you want. But I will leave you with this thought today. The best way to avoid your true responsibilities is to say, I've got responsibilities. That comes from Richard Bach in the book Illusions, the Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah. Right? That, that, that is a very true thing. Many of us abdicate our responsibilities to ourselves, to our lives, to our passions, to our talents by saying, well, I can't. I've got responsibilities. You can be a good father, mother, husband, you know, whatever wife, etc., friend, and see to your own needs, and see to your own passions and your own talents. Figuring out how to do it is often difficult, but if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, and the world would probably be awful happy and probably awful boring, because I also think the struggle to find it is what makes the journey worth taking. On that note, As we wrap up here today, I do want to remind you guys, I don't have a, a product review for you guys today because I actually uh, recorded this show on Thursday, 
so that I could pursue one of my passions, which is, was fa fishing and technology. So we're out playing in my boat right now while you're listening to this, probably learning all this cool new technology I had installed on my boat over the last couple of weeks. Um, but you can support this show simply by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. If you're going to buy something on Amazon over the weekend, just go to tspaz.com, shop through tspaz.com, you help support the show, and you can check out all the items that I've reviewed over the past, oh, it's been over a year and a half now that I've been putting up items for daily review. Uh, if you ever want to know a recommendation for something or you have a suggestion for item of the day, let me know. Just send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. As always, TSPC in the subject line. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is by Styx. Yeah, Styx. One of, actually one of my favorite bands of all time. I always loved Styx. And this is probably my favorite Styx song. It's called Grand Illusion. Here's a little bit on Grand Illusion off of Song Facts. Uh, the Grand Illusion is the world as framed by media. The song was written and sung by Styx keyboard player Dennis DeYoung, who told Rockseller Magazine, The Grand Illusion was my way of expressing to the audience that the pressure that is put on them by advertising media and, yes, rock stars to believe in an illusion that does not really exist was not healthy for them. I was trying to point out to them that simply they shouldn't believe the myths that other people create for them, and they should understand that it really is in some ways a form of entertainment or simply advertising. Let me tell you the most... That's my granddaughter, folks. That, uh, let me tell you, like I think maybe the most important thing to take from that, it applies to the news media, too. Okay? It's a grand illusion. It's a grand illusion. The, 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 you are looking at, in the political spectrum, the WWE, right? Two wrestlers fighting each other that smoke dope behind the scenes. That, that, that's what you're looking at. And they're run by a giant corporate op apparatus that actually tells them what to do and when to do it. That's what you're looking at. And the media is just a supporting component of that, right? So when the wrestler comes out and he's, he's dressed in some kind of weird costume or something, that's, that's, that's Fox News. And the other wrestler comes out and he's dressed in some other weird, stupid shit, that's MSNBC, right? And, and then there's like some little, like, ringside uh, manager idiot screaming and yelling nonsense, that's CNN, right? That's CNN. Um, and, and it is it's a grand illusion. But here's the thing. Illusions are conducted by using the truth and piecing it together in a way that gives you a different interpretation of it. So when David Copperfield puts the pretty girl in the box, a pretty girl really goes into a box, But the box gives you an appearance that her head's coming out one area and her feet are coming out another, but she's kind of curled up in a ball and off to the side and her head's out there and that foot and that hand aren't even hers. They could be fake. They could belong to somebody else. So that when he puts the blade in there, yeah, it looks like she's getting cut in half, but that hand is coming in from a completely different angle and there's plenty of room for the blade. And when pff, the smoke goes off and she shows up 20 feet away standing behind the, the, the stage on top of a platform, there's really a girl there, but there's probably just one that really looks a lot like her. Or when you were watching all that shit going on, she just crawled under the stage and popped up up there and just stood up when the smoke popped. But it's all real and it's all an illusion. It's all real, 
and it's all fake. So I have a book recommendation for you guys. I'm going to tell you, this is hard to read. It jumps around through time. It is written by two authors, Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. I am pretty sure both of them were stoned at minimum the entire time they were writing this. It's really written kind of in the time... Well, it's written all over in time. That's the other thing. It jumps back and forth through time. But it's really written in, like, the 60s time frames. It's all drugs and sex and stuff like that. It's called the Illuminatus Trilogy. The Illuminatus Trilogy. And it has... Every conspiracy theory you've ever seen in it, or you've ever heard of in it, every single one, and a lot of it is completely fabricated bullshit. Some of it's based on fact. Some of it is fact, but most of it's it's nonsense. But the story that's woven is all of these different groups, protesting groups, anarcho groups, Communist groups, racial groups, they're all fighting for what they really believe in. And boy, they really believe in it. But in the end, in the end, they're all being used to work for the same goal. This book was written, I believe, in 91. It was a good time for a book like that to be written. Today is a better time for it to be read. Here's the good news. It's really long. It'll take you a long time to read it. And again, it jumps all over through time. It'll bend your brain around a little bit. But maybe it'll get you off Facebook for a while. Because I think I'm about to have a Facebook fast. I'm about fed up with the stupidity and nonsense of Facebook. Maybe I'm going to go ahead and read the Illuminatus Trilogy again for myself. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get a copy of this book. It also is available in audio book as well. I'll see if I can find a link to Audible on Amazon where you can get it that way. But I recommend reading it. It's, it's, it seems to me like it'd be one of those that's uh, better to be read. But in this book, you will learn the word Fenord. 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 And you will hear one of the characters screaming finally, I see the Fenords. I see the Fenords. I see the Fenords. Holding up newspapers, I see the Fenords. When you learn to see the Fenords, you will see the grand illusion. For what it is. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.